Hey, all right. So this is a fourth audio lecture. Um, and the chapter that you just most recently read um, was on speech errors again. Like, holy smokes, who would have guessed? But this time, he's focusing more on the difference between phonological errors and morphological errors. So what I'm going to do really quickly is summarize those. Oh, tip of the tongue was also in this chapter, but I thought it fit a little bit better with what we were talking about um, in the last chapter and uh, fit a little bit better with some of the activities. So we'll just talk about the uh, differences between phonological and morphological errors. Then I'll bring in a couple outside ideas from different areas of psychology that I think are other good ways of maybe conceptualizing this and thinking about it. Um, and then we'll uh, we'll continue talking about working memory, because that will come up in this section as well. It comes up a little bit in speech production, but once we get to speech comprehension, there's going to be a lot about working memory there. So if we talk about it now and kind of relate it to some of the concepts now, by the time we're talking about speech comprehension, you'll have a really good handle on it. All right, so first we'll talk about morphological errors, and a couple of these that I really like that he points out are that you might see someone go from saying wearing a name tag to naming a wear tag, which doesn't, uh, you know, make much sense. A wear tag just sounds like a, like a crappy werewolf, right? Um, you'd also then, I guess, expect somebody to go from naming a werewolf to wearing a name wolf. And that kind of shows that we can move around our endings, right? So name and wear will move around, but the ing stays where it's supposed to. We've talked about this two times previously. So it's not really important that we go totally back into just the fact that that moves around, that it seems like there's a syntactic structure that remains intact. And then the actual words that we've chosen will move around within that syntactic structure. We've talked about that. Um, but it, it gets more interesting, right? So the WUG study is a totally fantastic study. Um, and there's, a, there's pictures of WUGs in the show notes as well. They're, I don't know, they're kind of cute, right? They're weird little uh, fat birds is what it kind of looks like. Um, but essentially what it is is these linguists would show children uh, this drawing, this fake bird-looking thing, and say, this is a WUG. Then they would show them a picture of two of this creature, and they would say, what are you looking at? And they would say, wugs. So they would just add the S onto wug, which is interesting. It shows that there's something that we've learned about language that allows us to tack an S on. We know that the plural, the rule for plural is add an S. But actually, it's actually even more interesting than that, right? So we know that it's wugs and not wuggas. We're using a, a like a soft s, like an s sound rather than a z. And that's interesting because we can make both of those uh, with tacking on the s, right? You'll see it with um, horses, but then you might see it differently with goes. And in fact, there's another error that's pointed out in the book um, where the phrase is supposed to be goes back, but it's pronounced as go backs. So the S has moved, but it's not a phonological error. It's not just like I've accidentally put this sound somewhere that my program has said that I'm going to use the S sound, the S, 
and then I've accidentally said ghost backs or ghost back, right? I'm not saying ghost back. I'm saying goes back. So if it was a phonological error, it would come out as a soft S. But it's definitely a morphological error because we're saying it correctly. We're saying goes back. He also talks about the movement of the negative element. This one's a little bit more interesting and maybe more convincing also if you're kind of on the fence as to whether this is actually um, a morphological versus a phonological error, right? And and he's not saying at all that there are not phonological errors, right? Certainly we make them. We'll talk about them in a second. Um, but we do make morphological errors as well. And the difference between the two are indicative of the process behind forming speech. But anyway, the negative element argument is showing, uh, you might, if you've read the book already, you'll remember seeing this. If you haven't, there's one where uh, the sentence is, I regard that as imprecise, but it actually comes out as I disregard that as precise really strange. So it's clearly not a phonological error because you would actually have said, I am regard that as precise if it was a phonological error or I regard that as disprecise, right? But that's not what has happened. Somehow there's like, you can think about it like a tag, like in the syntactic structure, you've got a tag that says negative, or negate, or the opposite of, or something like that, right? Whatever whatever it is that we are thinking about, like use this root word, but then make it negative, right? And somehow that tag has been moved. So it's not a production error. It's not just a simple motor error in producing the speech, or that the that motor program has been moved. It's that the tag has moved somewhere in our mind before reaching our mouth. And also before before the phonological process happened because the phonological process is acting on that tag correctly. Disregard that as imprecise. So again, that just shows that there is a difference. There's kind of like a hierarchical, possibly a hierarchical type of processing that's going on, right? A syntactic structure is formed and it's not always perfect. Um, tags can be in the wrong place. And then that goes, moves down a level and it then has words inserted into it, right? And, uh, and then it comes out as a motor program. And of course we can have motor <laughs> errors too. Like when we blah, 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 stumble over our own words, that's not really as interesting. That's kind of like just something got, you know, crossed or one part of the mouth is moving faster than, uh, the other which isn't necessarily indicative of the thought process, though it can be. I mean, motor errors can also indicate um, higher levels of stress. They're correlated with fast talking, but they're not necessarily as interesting as uh, morphological and phonological errors. Now, one thing that I want to point out about the morphological errors, and this goes along with my uh, my natural regularities bent, right? Like that's That's my whole thing. If you remember from the first lecture... It's all about natural regularities for me. Is that the S ending, pluralizing something, so wug to wugs, is very regular, right? Like there, that exists in our vocabulary, and there's not a lot of words. Children is one that doesn't follow that structure, but um, most do. Shoes, um, pants, 
hangers. I'm in my closet again, so I'm just looking at stuff that's around me. Sunglasses, right? Um, those all follow add an S rule for pluralizing. And so it's not really hard for us to see a fake word like stad and know that the plural should be stads or um, spling and the plural is splings, right? Or gleave and the plural is gleaves, right? These are all totally fake words, but nothing that I'm saying to you probably sounds ridiculous. It's very probable in our language. There's a high probability that an S is going to be the pluralizer. It's really unnatural for there to be a word like children. Even there's some words that we get wrong, like cul-de-sacs. Uh, and we're putting the S in the wrong place. It's actually culs de sac But it's still pluralized with an S. It's still culs de sac right? Not cul-de-sacs. If you think about now past tensing something, so think about gleave, the past tense. Go ahead and say it. Did you say gleaved? Probably. That, it sounds right to me, too. Gleaved. It sounds right. What about spling? What's the past tense of spling? Did you say splinged? Or did you say splung? Either one seems right. It doesn't sound unusual. But the one that sounds really unusual to me is stad. What is the past tense of stad? Stadded? That doesn't sound right. It just seems like it violates some rule of English grammar. And I'm not sure what rule it is. I don't... It's not like a cognitively penetrable rule, which is true about natural regularities, right? They're not always cognitively penetrable. They're things... They're information that we pick up on almost subconsciously and uh, we just use it to navigate the world or to navigate speech. But stadded doesn't sound right to me. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? I'm, I'm going with something like... Stod, the past tense of stad is stod or stoud or something like that. It's one of those ones. It definitely seems like one that's going to change its form when it goes to past tense. I, I don't know. It's <laughs> not sure. I'm not sure what the correct one is. It's a fake word. Why would, why would I know? Um, but it definitely seems like stadded doesn't work to me. And so pluralizing is very regular. It almost never is anything but S. Um, past tensing is regular, but not necessarily for everything. It doesn't take us a long time to look through fake words to find something that doesn't sound right. So it's a little bit less probable. And somehow in our conceptualization of what the English language is, uh, these probabilities are like represented somehow. They exist somehow right? So we know that more of a thing is usually S. Very seldomly is it N. Um, but the past tense is usually ED. But more often is it something else. More often than it's not an S for pluralizing, is it not an S for ED? And then the one that gets really strange is negating. Is it dis? Is it in? Is it un? Is it im? Any of those, right? unpredictable, impredictable, um, unpredictable. So that kind of shows that the probability that's, a, that that's attached to making something negative, none of those really have a 
preference, right? There's nothing that's really, that's by and large, more probable than the others. Maybe un, possibly, but the rest are all about equal. And when you go to say, how do you negate this? You might be like, un properly or improperly, you know, something like if it was an ungleave or degleave or uh, imgleave or in, instad, right? It, none of them really have something that's as obvious as ed or s. And so it seems like there are these probabilities that are attached to language. And they're attached because of the words that we know. It's just something we've learned. Now, it might seem like I'm appealing to like the lexical hypothesis. And uh, we haven't really talked about this. The book hasn't totally talked about this. But some people uh, think that there is a mental lexicon, right? Like somehow stored in the brain is every word that you've ever learned, right? And so to some, they think that every word and every form of every word exists in the brain. So possible exists, but also impossible exists, but also possibility exists as three distinct different notes. Some people think that there's a lexicon and possible exists, and then there's derivations of possible. So there's possible, there's impossible, then there's im, and you know, you can negate it, it's impossible. Then you can um, change the, you can completely make a new word from it. This is the derivational morphology that we talked about before, and make it possibilities. Um, And that there would only be one kind of lexicon there. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that I believe in one or the other. Maybe it's a little bit of both, maybe it's neither. But I kind of feel like what's going on is just by virtue of us hearing words come in, we start to get this idea of this is how you pluralize something, and it's mostly this way. The ones that are weird, we might have to remember, like memorize that it's children and not child's. But we come up with a rule. We recognize that there's a rule. And the same thing with negating. We recognize that there's not really a rule, that there are these four or five or maybe six sometimes different things that we can tack on to negate. None of them are really preferable. Uh, And so we will just kind of keep them as a nebulous thing and then try to decide when it comes up. But it's all from the language that we like pull this in from outside. All right, let's talk about phonology and phonological errors. They're fundamentally different from morphological errors, which is really interesting. So morphological errors will usually um, act on whole words, multisyllabic words or whole, um, you know, ideas like name and where, and not just little um, syllables or first letters of those. So morphological errors are some whole word And phonological errors typically are one letter or um, one syllable, uh, small things. But also morphological errors tend to occur over the size of a clause, right? So maybe within one sentence usually, but over the size of just a clause. If you think about a clause like your noun phrases or verb phrases from the syntactic trees um, activity. So the morphological errors are happening over the course of that. You might say, to those about to salute, we rock you, right? Um, But a phonological error usually happens within uh, clause, right? So you'll usually change up 
maybe the first two letters of, of words within a clause or the first sound of words within a clause. So using the same example, for those about to talk, we salute you. You've accidentally put in the T from two into rock. So that's one possible phone. That's an idea of how phonological errors are different from morphological errors. And it shows something different about the, the process, that it's a little bit less global. It's more at the local level, right? And in fact, you see that phonological errors are more likely when you've got things like the same starting letter, right, followed by a different vowel. So P-A versus P-U. Those will be uh, those syllables, those two two-letter sounds, not necessarily a syllable, will be uh, exchanged more often than if they didn't have that same structure. Um, the same vowel with a different starting consonant. Those starting consonants are more likely to be exchanged. If the beginning letter has a similar placement in the mouth or manner or voicing, anything that's similar about it in our you know, rules of phonology, those are going to be more easily transposed. And then also, if the syllable has similar stress. So, so think of, for stress, the only one that's coming to my mind is emancipation proclamation. Now, those are, you might, you know, see somebody say emancipation proclamation, which is really, it's really weird. But um, they have the stress in the same place. And so you might swap those stressed syllables. It works even better because you have the same, um, you have an A, an A sound in there too. It's just changed up by the M and the P. So there's a lot of similarities between those. It's likely that those will get exchanged more so than anything else in that phrase would get exchanged. So it shows that there's some sort of uh, similarity about the things that are getting exchanged. Now, one thing I want to bring up about that is this idea of the attractor landscape. This comes from the dynamics, uh, dynamical systems perspective of psychology. Well, it's not necessarily just of psychology. It also exists in uh, physics and um, uh, the natural sciences, uh, like biology and stuff like that. But uh, anyway, um, essentially what it is, is you can imagine a landscape, not like a trees or anything landscape, but imagine like some sort of futuristic inside a computer landscape. So you've got those like um, cross-hatched boxes, those, you know, neon colors on a black background. So just think about that's the floor, right? And you are a marble or your motor program is a marble, right? And the marble is going to go into anything that sinks down a little bit. It's going to roll into it. So you think about the rolling is you start to want to say, well, I guess let's just keep using Emancipation Proclamation, right? So you're going to say um, you're doing an essay on Lincoln or you're talking about Lincoln and you want to say Emancipation Proclamation. So these ideas for Emancipation Proclamation start to deform the landscape. They start to become attractor wells, right? And the marble is going to move into it. Now, that's probably at the morphological level. So at the phonological level, what you're starting to create is the E, M, E, N. Like, these are all beginning to become attractors. 
and the placement of where those are going to go, the order that you're going to say those, um, kind of has a deformity too, right? So the, the first thing you're going to want to say is E. So there's going to be a construction of your mouth that begins to um, sink in, and the marble starts to roll towards E. I mean, it might be something like vowel. So anything that doesn't have constriction is going to deepen in this attractor landscape. And the, and the marble is going to kind of roll towards these things that don't have constriction. Um, it's, you're going to go for one that's closed, E. It's kind of, if you say E, E, your mouth is closed a little bit. If you've had phonetics, you, you know this. But if you haven't, um, say E and then say O and then say ah. And you can see that E is closed, O and ah are open. So you're going to want to do closed and the marble starts rolling more towards E. You come up with a couple more things and E is produced. Now you get all the way through and you get to pay. You've already in your head come up with your saying emancipation proclamation. So the phonemes that are going to go into this are already sort of depressed. There's the uh, there's the ability of the marble to roll into any of these. Now, what's coming up next in the system is going to be something that is A. You're going to go pay. You want it to be something that's going to move into A. Uh, a little syllable that, you know, a syllable that uh, is going to say pay. And so you've got all these characteristics. The marble starts rolling to it. But for some reason... Um, it rolls toward the other attractor that's been deepened for May from proclamation, emancipation proclamation. So it's A and then it moves into Shun and both of these are deepening and for some reason the marble rolls into May Shun instead of Pei Shun and you end up saying emancipation proclamation. That's the attractor landscape model. It seems like it makes a lot of sense to me from just a uh, well, I don't know, visualizing myself as a marble, I guess. I, maybe that's why it makes sense, but which is which is weird. Maybe it's because I play a lot of pinball, I guess. That could be. Um, but it does help visualize these um, ideas. And I'll probably talk more about it because I think it's a useful idea. Uh, if you like it, you, you know, try to apply it to other areas. I mean, you can think about it in terms of a lot of psychological issues or even a lot of... Um, articulatory and phonological problems that you might see as an SLP, you can think of uh, and model it like an attractor landscape. So if you can try to figure out all the things that are pushing the marble towards that area, what's making the landscape attractive for the marble, the marble's behavior or the person or whatever. And if you can reduce the strength of one of those attractors, then the marble is probably going to go to the correct one when it had been going to the wrong one. Hopefully that's helpful. There's a picture kind of of what I'm talking about in the show notes. Now, one other thing that occurred to me when I was reading some of the examples in the book is the example of saying sudden death instead of sudden death. It could just be a simple phonological error, and likely it is a, it is a phonological error for sure. It's not just likely, it is a phonological error. But it does seem like if you say, say S, so go S, and then go suh, you're opening your mouth a lot more. So from closed, uh, sudden, and then you're closing it back up for the din, 
because everything after that is pretty closed. So uh is the only open vowel there. And then death, the eh is a lot more closed than the uh. So it does seem like it's possible that one reason why you might accidentally say sudden death or even sudden death instead of sudden death is because your mouth is actually having to do less work. So it's possible that uh, you have a, an attractor for uh, there's an attractor for eh, especially because sudden, you're going to say eh anyway at the, at the end of that word, that you might move through eh to get to the attractor of uh. And because you're already there, it becomes an attractor. You can't move out of it. So then you end up saying sudden death or sudden death. Another possibility that goes along with that is we often say the phrase said and done, which sounds a lot like sudden death. So you could have all these different things that are deforming your attractor landscape to push you into saying sudden death, or I think sudden death is even more likely sudden death. All these different things could be deforming your attractor landscape and pushing your marble of behavior or of what your mouth is saying into sudden death instead of sudden death. So it's kind of an interesting thing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to look through some of these databases of errors. I'm going to look at the mouth position. So change in mouth position. I expect what we're going to see is that errors are more likely to incorporate a phoneme where the mouth position doesn't change as much as it should. So you're usually you're not usually going to say doth when you say sudden. I think it's probably going to end up being sudden death. But you will often end up saying sudden because you're not moving the mouth position as much. So the last thing we have to talk about is working memory. And there's a couple ideas within memory systems, not, not necessarily just within working memory, that we should talk about first as well. So one of these is serial versus parallel processing for verbal memory. And essentially all that means is that serial processing means that you move through different layers uh, and you rarely go back up. So if you think about morphological errors versus phonological errors, it does seem like you move through the morphological stage, then down to the phonological stage. Because the morphological stage is acting at a higher level in the sentence than the phonological stage is. I can also think about it in terms of a parallel processing event. Parallel processing, parallel processing just means that they're happening at the same time. So maybe the morphological process is happening concurrently and it's constructing a sentence on the fly. Um, phonological processes are coming in as those words are kind of dropping into place. So you can think about it like a, a freight train is moving along. The freight train's going. But there's people inside the freight train that are throwing out bags of grain or something like that to uh, people that need them, um, but the train isn't stopping. So the train is the morphological process. It's going to keep going. And the phonological process is throwing out these bags of grain, which in this case are different phonemes. So it's possible that you can think about it like that too. And maybe that's where some of these errors come in. The morphological train is moving. The phonological train is, or the phonological workers are throwing bags out. And somehow the train slows down, but the workers are throwing the bags out at the same rate. 
and possibly they throw too many bags out or they throw the bag out at the wrong time because the train slowed down or sped up. That could be how some of these errors happen. So it's hard to parse them apart because you can kind of conceptualize a lot of the errors as happening one way, but the more you think about it, it actually makes sense that it might be happening the other way too. But we're not really sure how the brain constructs grammar. Is it a serial event where it's discrete, where one thing happens, then another, then another, and then the sentence comes out? Or is it this online process where all these different things are moving within each other and the whole train is moving along and workers are um, throwing bags out and rats are inside the bags and, you know, there's fleas on the rats and they're all doing different things. And these are all different lexical processes. It could be either way. But there's a big distinction between serial and parallel. But both of those ideas kind of use this modal process. So there's another distinction between modal and like a streaming kind of view, right? Modal essentially means that there are different uh, processing units for different things. So there's a morphological processing unit, the train that we were talking about, and there's a phonological processing unit, which is the workers. But the streaming view kind of says that it's really all one process. It's just one thing that constructs sentences, and that's, that's it. There's not embedded nested layers that either happen concurrently or serially. It's just one thing. So that's another distinction between the two. So we've got serial versus parallel. And different views of those will be modal. My views of both, the way that I conceptualize both of those is a modal view by looking at each thing by itself. In fact, it's kind of inherent to think about the serial view as modal. The serial view necessitates a modal view. Otherwise, how is it not happening serially? So, but then there is also a distinction between the modal perspective and the streaming perspective or this unitary perspective. So a lot of different ideas of what language is doing. And a lot of our experiments are kind of trying to tease apart which one of these is true. Now, one other thing about memory that's a little bit less um, nebulous and less hard to grasp is Miller's magic number. You might have heard it as seven, um, plus or minus two. Recent research is showing that it's actually more like four plus or minus one. Um, and the reason for that is these something known as chunking strategies. A chunking strategy is just a way to put information together to think of it as one unit. So imagine if you thought of <laughs> if you thought of the phrase emancipation proclamation in all of its different syllables and just remembered only the syllables completely independently of another. So you had e man se pe shun those are all different things. So five different syllables just for one word that you wouldn't connect into emancipation. That's already almost the number of things that you can remember in memory, depending on if it's seven plus or minus two or four plus or minus one. If it's four plus or minus one, you're there. If it's seven plus or minus two, you might be there or you might be able to remember four more. But chunking is when we put it into a word, emancipation. Or you can think about uh, if you're trying to remember numbers, someone's uh, phone number. 
if they have the same area code as you, you don't have to remember their area code because you just think same area code, doesn't matter. Or let's say you have an area code that's 480 and there's a 602 or 623. Maybe you just think Phoenix, right? So you know it's the Phoenix area code. So you don't have to remember 602. You know that Phoenix translates to 602. You know that Westside translates to 623. You know that Flagstaff translates to 928, right? So your internal idea of what that number is can be chunked into the main city from wherever that uh, area code comes from. Now, I know some of you that aren't listening in Arizona are like, what? It's not 480, it's 408. You're totally crazy. Well, we have an area code here that's 480. And that's really confusing when we get business cards from the 408 area code, because we just think it's printed, like, improperly. And I'm sure you get the same problem when you get 480 business cards. You probably call the wrong person all the time. I know we do. So this may account for some of our production errors. We try to chunk things together, and maybe we're chunking them improperly, or maybe the amount of information that we can remember is getting overtaxed, and we start moving things around, and it becomes an error. Now, interesting things from verbal working memory is that words with similar beginnings are actually harder to remember when they're presented in a list. So if you presented all the words, if you presented 50 words that started with P-A and try, had somebody try to remember all those words versus just giving them a list of 50 random words that started with any random uh, conjunction of letters, they would remember more words from the random list then from the list of things beginning with P-A. And it's possible that the problem there is they're less able to chunk that information into um, useful bits of memory. Because they all start with P-A. They're all kind of, some will rhyme, some will look the same. There's not a lot of things that you can use to chunk the information. But with the random words, you can just tag concepts to each of those. Maybe the look of it, Maybe what it begins with, some of them rhyme. You can tag concepts that way. You also see that words with high syntactic frequency are more able to be remembered. And what the heck does syntactic frequency mean? Well, what it means is that there are some sounds that happen to be followed very often by other sounds, right? So, you know... If you're watching <laughs> Wheel of Fortune, um, and at the end, they'll always give the person R-L-S-T-N-E. The reason they give the person those letters when they're trying to guess the phrase is because those are the most common letters in the English language. Also, it totally looks like it spells R-L Stein, which is awesome. Um, so anyway, they give them those letters because they're the most common, and then they start guessing others. Well... There are also very common phonemes in the English language. And in addition to there being very common phonemes in the English language, there are also very common combinations of phonemes in the English language. So if you have a word that uses these very common phonemes and uses the very common phoneme combinations, so let's say you have a word that uses three common phonemes and they're combined in a common way, it'll be very easy to remember more easy than a word that uses uncommon phonemes in an uncommon pattern.
Um, some of these are Bell. That is a very common, uh, both common phonemes, be ol and be ol I should say. And it's a very common way to uh, hook together those phonemes. There's a lot of words that have be eh. There's a lot of words that have eh ol. Watch, on the other hand, is a very uncommon word. There's not a lot of words that have w a ch. And it's mostly that last phone, like the ch is kind of strange, and the w. And it's also very uncommon for there to be a combination of a ah, ch and a w a ch. A w a and a ch. Those are uncommon. So you would expect that more people would remember bell than would remember watch. Especially if you have a list of all words that are very common, you don't have to do as much work to remember those because you think, oh, uh, this is a common word. Maybe you don't think that, you know, out, out loud. Think it out loud to yourself in your head. But it is more easily remembered because it follows the natural regularity of the language. But then a word like watch, a list of words like watch, are very difficult to remember because they don't follow the natural regularity of the language. So you need fewer bits of memory, essentially, to remember commonly um, phrased or commonly spelled or commonly common words with common phonetics than you need to remember words with uncommon phonetics. They'll take a lot more bits of memory. And that overtaxes your working memory system. One last thing are priming effects. These are really interesting. So priming, we talked about this with tip of the tongue. Priming is essentially like cueing someone about something, right? So there's something called the lexical decision task where you're shown a word uh, that's somehow occluded. There's a version of this that I want you to try. It's not necessarily for points, but try it and you'll get an idea of what the lexical decision task is. Um, you have to decide whether it is a word or a non-word. And the non-words look a lot like words. So you're going to push a button if it looks like a word to you. You're going to push a different button if it doesn't look like a word. And we can get baseline measures of how quickly people will respond to words versus non-words. But then people can be cued or primed with other words. So the word doctor you'll have a baseline time that you'll respond to whether this is a word or not. But if you're cued by the word nurse, you will respond to doctor faster than you would without the cue. And what's really interesting about this is if you get an improper cue, so if you get like robber and then you get doctor, it'll take you longer to respond that that's an actual word than it did when you didn't get any prime. So that shows that we can prime ourselves to come up with words. We can pull them out of our, if you believe in a mental lexicon, we can pull them out of our mental lexicon more easily when we have a prime and a correct prime. And we might even be able to pull out the phonemes that are more common when we have a correct prime than when we don't. But some of these errors could be caused by primes that usually prime something else. So maybe they're an uncommon combination of phonemes. Or maybe we choose the wrong word because usually we say it in a different way. And so the wrong word comes out and that screws up our uh, morphological structure. So 
there's a lot of interesting interplay between memory uh, and creating, just creating words, just putting words out into the air. Um, and like I said, it's going to get even crazier when we get into listening to speech and speech decoding and, and uh, understanding speech on the fly, where there's going to be a lot more memory models that come up and different things, different uh, errors of how we hear things and understand things based on these same working memory principles and, and memory principles like priming. All right. Uh, well, that's it for the lecture. I think this is a much shorter one than usual. And next week, I'm going to have both lectures up um, at the beginning of the week for you and all of the materials up so you can get ahead and not have to wait for the second part of the week to begin so you can do your work. So we're going to kind of move to just a not two part of the week sort of structure. The only thing you might have is a couple. Um, if there's a discussion board, you'll have to make a discussion post before the second half and then respond um, at the end of the second half. So, But other than that, we'll move to just a single week structure. Hey, there's also a test that's going to open up um, at the, well, same day that this is coming up, the test will be open. But the test will remain open. It should just be at the end of this week, but I'll give you a full week to uh, work out a time to take it. The test will open same day this drops, and it will be open not until Wednesday. It'll actually be open for an entire week, so until Saturday night. It's your first exam. Um, it's kind of long. I think it's about 40 questions is what I ended up writing for it last night. Um, and they come from all the readings, uh, mostly from the lectures and, and our textbook, but there's stuff from the other, uh, readings and the other videos as well. So if you want to get a hundred percent, make sure that you've watched and read everything, not just the lectures and the book. Though, if you're pressed for time, the lectures in the book are where most of your points are going to come from. All right. Well, hey, good luck on your test, um, and I'll talk to you next week.